Hi, Paul Scanlon here. Thanks for taking the time to click on my podcast. I want to spend time focusing on my primary passions of leadership, personal development, communication, growing big people, and I hope that these podcasts really help and add value to your life and to your journey. Thanks for tuning in. One of the greatest challenges for us reinventing this church 10 years ago was not that we didn't love people. I, I think every church can honestly hand on heart say that they love God and they love people. I think it's to a degree. I, I think it's obviously different measures in different settings. And I, think that's, I think that's fair. But, but we were a church that loved God and, and loved people. But we were not growing. And we were not making a difference in our community. I found that frustrating. Because we sang songs about loving God and loving the world, and we preached messages about that, and I think we all believed and we all felt that, but we were not doing anything. So, so in my mind, the way I'd been trained is that I realized the only way to grow is that we need to do more evangelism. And so we had more evangelistic projects, and we tried to get ideas from different places and borrow those and and try and evangelize our community. And so we did, you name it, we did it like probably some of you have done. And then you'd put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money into an evangelistic week. And then three and a half people get saved. And then one of those is left a year from now. And you kind of think, well... And so, and so built into what we did was the potential for discouragement at the end of it. Because we, we over-endorsed the possibility of that event, and then the results were disappointing. What crossing this church over and reinventing this church taught me is this, that, that when your church is not growing and not making a difference, we believe the answer to that is that we do more. I realize the answer is not that we do more, the answer is that we have to become more. We are living in a doing society. The Western world is driven by doing. That's why old people are not celebrated in our society. Because the older you get, the less you can do. And some people say, what do old people do all day? As if they're defined by what they do. And because now they don't do anything, we're not sure how to value them. And so old people, as you know, in our country, much of the Western world, are not honored and not loved, unlike many cultures in the world where they are. And the older you get, the more honor and deference is paid to you. Not in this Western defining people by doing society. If by the time you get old, or if God forbid something happens to you that disables you from being able to do what you do, and if that happens, you have not discovered before that happens that life is not about what you do, but it is about who you are in the essence as a person, then you will live a very miserable, unfulfilled, frustrated life. Often people who have had a disability and people who have been born into this world with some crippling illness and have all their life suffered and been unable to do what would be considered normal to most of us, normally, I've found this with many of these people, they've discovered something about the essence of personhood that many of us who just do, do, do and have never had anything stopping us doing and the fulfillment that doing brings and the definition and identity and status that doing brings have never yet discovered. So we had a church that was doing more but achieving less. We were doing more but growing less. 
we were doing more but getting more frustrated and more anxious and more infighting and more unhappiness inside the church. And I realized that our key to turning this church around, and maybe this will help you today, I don't know. Our key to turning this church around was not that we need more evangelism to reach the lost. But we have got to talk to our church about increasing their circle of love. And if you don't evangelize anybody else for the next 12 months, we don't care. Because if we get this right, we think if we get this right, growth will not be a problem. And so we began to talk to the church about increasing their circle of love. Because, because the reality is this, every church, every church will default to loving the same kind of people that already go to that church. Every church has a demograph. That's why we have mainly black churches. We have mainly white churches. We have mainly older membership churches, mainly younger membership churches, um, mainly poor people in the church, mainly middle class or uh, wealthier people in churches. The, the general demograph, if you look at most churches now, it's pretty easy to see in a glance the age range of that church, the economic band of that church, the racial group in that church belong to. I have no problem with a mainly black church, by the way, if the demograph of that neighborhood is mainly black people. It makes sense and you're doing a great job. But if, if that's not mainly your community and you're mainly a black church, then I'm not sure that the circle of love in that church is extending beyond black people. Or if it's white, beyond white people. Or in America, Hispanic and so on, different uh, nationalities. That, uh, But what's happening, and that's, it's not a complaint until we until we realize it's a potential danger in our reaching the world, and then don't do anything about it. I'm just giving you a heads up here. That, that we default to reaching those we feel comfortable with. No one wants to reach anybody that's outside of your comfort zone of the kind of people you'd normally do life with. It's a social dynamic in the world. It's not just in the church. It shouldn't be in the church, but, but it is. And so most churches would really, you know, you would, you would without provocation and without being inspired and without sometimes feeling uncomfortable and without being challenged and stretched and sometimes embarrassed, you will only reach the same kind of people like you. It's just a sociological phenomenon. We default to people we feel comfortable with. So in other words, our circle of love is driven by comfort. It's not driven by compassion. When you only reach, and our churches only reach, a certain type of person that's the type of person that's already predominantly in the church, and yet we sing about reaching the world, and we cry over the lost, but we only ever reach the same kind of person, and not many of those either often, and we think the answer to increasing is to do more work and more evangelism, and so we work the people harder, people get exhausted, we feel small return for major effort, You've got to stand back sometimes and think, maybe there's another idea I need to have here that's nothing to do with doing anything. We all want to do something to fix what's wrong. And sometimes you can't do anything. You can only become something. Becoming is more work. It's more subtle. It takes longer. The results are not immediate. And so we began to talk to the church here about increasing our our circle of love and influence and, and loving the unlovely and loving the weak. And, and many of you know our story. When we started to run the bus ministry, 
the bus ministry was not so much an evangelistic doing as an attempt to increase our circle of love to the kinds of people that traditionally never came into our church. And when we started busing in the poor from our community, all hell broke loose in the church, which told me I was onto something. It, it, it told me that our doing and our increased evangelizing, the devil didn't care about and neither did God. Because that would have left us as the same group of people we were year on year with slight variations, no problem there. You know, your church can be so evangelistic and the devil loves it. He doesn't care because you just keep reaching the same few people. You will recycle the same people. But when you increase the circle of love in your heart, and that's what I found, and this is what you are finding or will find, your heart, the human heart, has a massive capacity to love. Way, way bigger than you have ever realized. Way, way bigger than all those people you think you've already stretched yourself to love. You can love entire cities. You can love entire nations. In fact, you can fit other cities and other nations into that same heart. You can even fit a world into that heart. But to love a world or a city or a nation, you have got to be willing to deal with what drives my influence, what drives my sharing of my life is it the comfort I find in not being around and not dealing with people that are not my types? Or is it God's compassion for all kinds of people? The problem with the same types of people finding each other is if your church, if your church is mainly poor and you're not reaching anybody that's wealthy, who models to the poor a better life if we never put them together? If your church is mainly wealthy and you never reach the poor, who models lack and responsibility without resources to those that are wealthy if the poor are never amongst us? Or if the poor are always someone in Africa? And we write checks to missions that are in third world and we send money to help starving Africans but we'll drive by the homeless going to work every day in our own community and not write a check for them. So we let the church believe that reaching the poor is something we do over there. Whereas Jesus said, the poor you always have with you. Open your eyes. And there are different definitions of poor, as you all know. Some of the richest people in the world are some of the poorest people in the world on the inside. When destiny kicks in to people's hearts, if it's, if it's true it takes one to know one, when you reach certain kinds of people, for instance, in our, in our situation here, when we've gone reaching the poor, when destiny kicks in and awakens in the poor, it's amazing who else they want to hang around besides poor people. When your gift and calling and potential is released and you realize poor is not my lot in life and poor is not my you know, inevitable end in life, I've noticed poor people started to get around people that are not poor. And started to spend time around families when they've never been amongst a family. And started to make friends with people that they'd never make friends with. If all they ever saw modeled was poverty and poor people and disempowered people. And people often with a victim mentality. When they get around a different demographic of people, all kinds of amazing chemistry starts to kick in. So when we build a church that is multicolored and multiracial and multigenerational and multi, you know, all kinds of specimens like Charlotte said this week all kinds of creatures, 
You know, we've often said our church is like the scene in the Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Skywalker is in the bar. And in the bar is species from all the cosmos. People with two heads and ten eyes and long necks and no necks and giants and dwarfs and, 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 and people that look dangerous and scary and people that look like they're asleep, people with no eyes, people with no heads, people with ten arms. That's what the church should be. We should have every kind of specimen in our city, in our church. In other words, when you walk into the church, you see a sample of the city in the church. And if we default to loving our own kind because our circle of love has not been challenged and we just keep evangelizing, but we just keep getting more of the same, and you know, those same people still need reaching, but they're not the only people in town. And I got tired of growing old with the same kind of people. Um, I wouldn't do that anywhere else in my life. Why would I do it in the church? Why would you in the church never ever see a, a, a different face or a different kind of person? The church should be the place where you most unexpected who you'll sit next to, who you'll see, who'll be up on a stage, what you might see on screen, what story you might hear, where you might see and be asked to celebrate the grace of God in a person's life. That should be the most dangerous place in your week. The church should be the most dangerous place in your week in terms of upsetting your comfort zone of how widely you normally love during your week. And our church was an absolute guaranteed safe zone from any freak out of meeting a person you wouldn't like to meet. I don't want to meet those nasty, you know, homeless people that beg for money. I don't want to deal with those, you know, those gay people, those, those homosexuals that I despise or, or, or a black person or, or, a, or a, a pimp or a prostitute, you know, or a successful business person. It can prejudice the other way. You know, or a person that drives a nice car or a person that wears nice jewelry or clearly has done well in life. You know, the, this can work all kinds of ways. And I don't want to be sitting next to these crazy, you know, wave your hands, jump around, rush to the front young people. Uh, you know, I make, my, new, uh, my new shoes will be damaged. My, my new bag... I don't want to be in the church where my stuff might get stolen. And, and whatever, and much of this is unspoken, but in the last 10 years we've probably heard all variations because church isn't safe anymore. All these comments are because church isn't safe anymore. And when church isn't safe anymore, I sense the Holy Spirit going, yes, yes, it's not safe. Hello, welcome to my world. Welcome to the real world. If church is safe, something's wrong. And you have got to be the first to say, like the boy in the emperor's new clothes, something's wrong here. It's too safe, too clinical, too disinfected, too predictable. And I loved it when God started sending people into our church that, that when they used the F word, it wasn't bleeped. It was full on. And all kinds of expletives and behaviors, and they were loose in our church. And just what it did to our church, because it'll do two things to you. It will offend you, and you say, I can't be in this anymore, and leave, and you'll go searching for further comfort somewhere and safety. Or, which is the idea that Kong was trying to present to us, or you might say, maybe, maybe I have loved too small. Maybe I have thought too narrowly about how this whole thing works. And maybe I need to let this that could turn into offense if I get around the long, wrong people here that are in offense about it. If I get around that crowd, I think I'm going to get that on me. Because offense has an argument and it has reason. 
And it's believable. Or, I mean, we get around these people that are saying, you know, I came on Sunday and, and my seat was taken by, by people I don't know and they sit where I normally sit and, and I think they were quite rude and I think they, were, they looked quite aggressive to me and I, I think that... But maybe what everything I felt when I saw those people, maybe God's saying, those people tell you more about you than they tell you about them. If we could get our people in our churches to wrestle with these things, maybe a few months from now, we'll have less judgmental people. We'll have people with a wider circle of love. And when people that live with a wider circle of love are at school and college and university and at work and doing life in the neighborhood, and they've learned to have a wider, less judgmental, shiny in your eyes kind of light, your church will grow. But what we've done is we've tried to make the church grow by doing instead of saying, let's work, on, let's work on us. Let's work on being. And let's ask, who are we? And are we representative of the heart of God? And that can be in lots of ways. And today we're particularly talking about God's heart for people, all kinds of people. And our church was an, was an all-inclusive church in our theology and our language, but we were exclusive in our behavior and in our lifestyles. Just like the apostle Peter that preached at Pentecost that this was for everyone and this outpouring is for all flesh, but Peter, unless God had confronted Peter, Peter would have built a Jewish church full stop. He had no intention of reaching Gentiles, none. Only when God showed him before the Cornelius episode, only when God let down a sheet three times and inside the sheet was, was things that Peter would not welcome into his world. Now, of course, it wasn't about animals. It was about people. And God set him up with an animal situation and, and Peter's hungry, so God waited till he was hungry. God will wait till you're hungry for something. God will wait till you're fed up about something. God will wait till you can't get any further and watch out. Because what happens on those days is not God trying to wind you up or rub it in. He's saying, well, now I've got your attention. Now you're fed up and now you're bored and now you're distracted and now you're thinking of quitting. Hello. And it's attentiveness. And God's saying, ah. Three times Peter said, Lord, I would never touch such things. Expecting a tick from God. And God said to Peter, do not call anybody unclean that I have accepted. Which means there is no one on the planet you can call unclean or unacceptable. Him not knowing that now he's going to realize it's not about animals, it's about all those creatures at Cornelius' house. And he goes down to these unclean creatures called Gentiles, and he stands in Cornelius' house in front of all these Gentiles, this Jewish kosher boy. And the first line in his sermon was looking at them all, almost possibly hundreds in Cornelius' household, looks at them all. His first line was this. <laughs> I now realize how true it is that God accepts all people and favors no people. I now realize. What do you mean you now realize? You preached a fantastic message a few years ago at Pentecost saying this is for all people. Didn't that include Cornelius' people? No, not in Peter's heart. You were the one that spent three years 24-7 with Jesus. What do you mean now you realize? If somebody can spend 24-7 with Jesus, 
and years later still not get it, I don't assume we will. And you should not assume you will and not assume our people will. But we assume it because we sing about it and we amen it and we cry over the lost. means nothing. You okay? We've got virtual reality, compassion. Virtual reality, inclusion of everyone. But when's the last time there was a character in your church that stood out by the fact that they did not fit into the demograph? When I first got saved, I was 15 years of age, I went to a local Pentecostal church. I was, and I realized eventually, I was for the first time, I mean in years and years and years, I was the first teenager that church had ever seen. Which is a lot of pressure. I was the token young person. I was the youth. I was. And I went to the school and I evangelized and reached out and loved on these mates of mine and, and about 30 of us eventually gave their lives to Christ and, and I took most of them to the church with me and we were the youth group. We all just overnight Kids were getting saved every day at school and we just became the youth group at this local church. And I'm going to tell you, it just completely melted the church down. Because when we got there, there'd be about 30, 40 people, mostly, mostly elderly, mostly women. And when we all rocked up, we, we're not from any church background. We don't know what to do, what not to do, and we just completely ruined. We ruined that nice church. We didn't mean to do it, but we did. And these people coming to our church could have ruined our church. And so we had a decision to make. Are they, are they ruining our church or, or did God send them to remodel our church? Which, which is, is it ruin or remodel? Which is this? Well, they saw that we ruined the church and most of these guys with me never stuck and didn't stay in the church and didn't feel welcome. I don't know why I did stick around because I felt equally mishandled and misunderstood. We've used this language in our team and our church from time to time before. Um, Marks and Spencers and Diesel. Which do you want your church to be? Diesel generation are our future. Under 25's in here last night. So many hands went up. So diesel, diesel is in the building. Now, most churches in our country are Marks and Spencers. Are, we, are you okay with this analogy? If you shop at Marks and Spencers, and I understand their underwear is still outstanding. <laughs> so if you shop at Marks and Spencers, you know, I'm just, I could pick another shop if you want to shout one out if you don't like the M&S thing. Okay, we'll stay with M&S. I'm just making a point that these two stores, and we, we could take two other brands of anything, represent two generations. And, and what we've done is we have built M&S churches or we've built diesel churches, but never the two shall meet unless it's some odd kind of coming together at some event. And then the diesel have their thing on Friday night and the M&S have their things on Sunday, but never the two shall meet. Or we have diesel things and we have M&S things, but we kind of keep them separate because we don't know how to blend and merge them. One of the things that we determined to do over the years 
is that we, wouldn't, that we would bring the youth band and the RPM band through to mainstream church life so that all of our church on Sunday would feel no difference being led in worship by RPM than they would by the mainstream band of the church, which were not all people, but, you know, these days, a few years can almost, set, you know, that's all shrunk down. And so RPM will lead our worship, and, and we've got 15-year-olds, and we've got 97-year-olds in the same room worshiping God, no problem. But I think historically what we have done is we've tried to build those two stores separately. And I didn't want to do that because to me it's another form of having an exclusive circle of love in terms of departmentalizing people. And you know the truth is this, God doesn't want a Max and Spencer's church and He doesn't want a diesel church, He wants both. But you have to decide which one you mainly put in the window. If you want diesel in your church generation, you've got to put some diesel stuff in the window. And it can't just be in the window. It has to be in the shop. Okay? So you can't just have diesel advertising and diesel slogans and, you know, pastor wears some different jeans on Sunday that are a little edgy and a little different. Looks terrible in them. It's not him. He's M&S trying to be diesel. You know, mutton, mutton trying to be lamb. Mutton dressed as lamb as we say. <laughs> No, if you're mutton, just be mutton. Enjoy being mutton and, and be cool. Be cool, mutton. Let the lamb be the lamb. So I don't think God wants either or. I think God wants both. But this is our problem. This is our historical as leadership problem. We don't know how to do both. We don't know how to keep the young generation with us. We don't know how... You know, it, it, it's... Give us a break a little bit too. I mean, you pastors and leaders in here... What we do is a nightmare. There is no equivalent to what we do. We are, we are simultaneously preaching to the 60s and overs whilst trying to keep the under 20s. So we're trying to hold the kids and we're trying to hold the 50, 60 pluses all at the same time. It's difficult mainly in advertising and branding, you'd pick one of those two audiences. You wouldn't try and do both. But because we realize that God doesn't just want either or, but, but all, we constantly try to reach all. But we have decided in this church that because the future is diesel and the future is not Marks and Spencers, that we have to celebrate, and this is how I see it come to people now, the older mums and dads, aunts and uncles, grandmas and granddads in the church diesel generation have no chance without those people. Their wisdom, their life experience, their love, their, their experience, their stature, their wisdom, their security, stability, the things they've discovered, it's like your kids without their parents. So we know as a church that we are in trouble if we don't have that generation in harness with the young, which is the fulfillment of what Peter said at Pentecost he said that your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions, but we've had, we've had visionary churches and dreaming churches, but never the two together. And I believe God wants to marry the dream of the old with the vision of the young and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. I don't know who's modeling it. I don't know where we can say, look, it's working there, because it's not easy. And the enemy, as I said on the first night with the legacy thinking, the enemy has a huge interest in keeping these generations separate because he knows more than any of us know, he knows that when the young and the old come together, 
the, the symbiotic, the exponential possibilities and potential from the combinational strength of those two coming together is phenomenal. There are small glimpses of it here and there from time to time. But if we could get that working in God's house, you know the government are throwing millions and millions and millions of pounds trying to make happen what I'm describing, and it's just not happening. They're trying to bring the races together and get integration. It's just not happening. They're trying to get the generations together, and it's just not happening. They're trying to get the different economic groupings together, and it's just not happening. The gap between the rich and poor continues to increase. Between old and young continues to increase. Black and white continues to increase. To me, I say, enter the church. Because if on any given Sunday, I can look out at this congregation and see black people sitting with white people, and Asian people sitting with Spanish people, and Europeans hanging out together, and all sitting next to young and having a coffee together up there, and poor people talking in the foyer with people that are obviously not poor, and it all just seems effortless. And, and then beyond the church service, those people start to do life together because Sunday can be a little bit false. But then beyond that, they begin to hang out together and maybe have dinner together and maybe start tackling some ventures together, maybe start serving in some things in the community together. Generation side by side, Races side by side, economic grouping side by side, different people types that would never normally be together side by side. I think our council, our government have got to say, which they're beginning to say, by the way, about the churches in this country, some of the churches, you guys are getting better results than we are. And if this government in our country was more pro-church instead of so riddled with this multi-faith nonsense, they should be writing checks for all of our churches that are reaching our communities, integrating people in our society, they should be writing checks of millions of pounds for all of us because we are making a bigger difference than all the trained professionals are. And I thank God for all those professionals. Because, because the bringing of people together is not more doing. It's being. You will not bring people together by projects and events and initiatives that, that get some multi-faith event together, then they all go back into their bunkers. It's like that March for Jesus stuff years ago. We all marched for Jesus and then we all said, see you next year and went back into our bunkers. And we marched for ourselves then. Then we all spent the rest of the year stealing each other's people. Then a few years later, we'd all come together and sort of march for Jesus for the day. And we'd go back and while some were marching for Jesus, they were canvassing people from other churches in the same communities. I know that always happens and so on, but I said, well, we can march for Jesus if we want, but I don't think it will achieve anything in unity in the city. Unity is not achieved by doing. It's achieved by doing. And unity is achieved by having a common purpose, a common vision, and we just get on with it together. And so you'll find yourself marching for Jesus, but nobody called it that. Because we are joined by a common cause to make a difference in our community. We have a great flow and you'll have a great flow with anybody in your town that is reaching the lost and has the same values that you have. You'll have a great flow with them, but you won't even try. I think one of Jesus' biggest problems with his disciples was this small circle of love that they had. And he spent years from the beginning 
trying to get them to widen that circle. So they said, Jesus, the Samaritans didn't welcome you in town. Why don't you just leave it to us, Jesus? We'll call fire down on all of them and just watch God burn them up. Yes. I just thought you guys just don't get it for crying out loud. Or, hey, Jesus, guess what we did? Full, full marks coming up for us. I don't know who said this to Jesus, but go on, you tell him. You, you say it. This, he's going he's gonna to love this. Hey, Jesus, we saw a guy casting out demons. Ha! You wouldn't believe it. He's not even part of our group. So guess what? We stopped that straight away. We said, you're not in our group. You can't do that. That's what we do. That's what the Jesus group do. That's what, hey, who do you think you are? You stop doing that. You're not qualified. You're not trained. You're not part of our group. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh. See, with him 24-7. And don't get it. Don't catch this heart. They just see doing things. And so they monkey see, monkey do. We do. We cast out demons. They don't do it. I saw someone else do it. No. And Jesus is kind of saying this. Okay, let me get this right. So what you're really saying is, better the demons stay in than someone not of our group cast it out. Is that right? Well, if you put it that way, I suppose I can see what you mean, Jesus. Well, what other way is there to put it? All the devils have to do, all the demons have to do is avoid our group. And they can stay in there for years. Because we keep stopping everybody else Reaching people. It's like Paul said. When, when people complain to him. You know Paul while you're in prison. And while you're not able to be around and amongst the churches. We're hearing that all kinds of people are going around preaching the gospel. And some of them are even doing it for money. And their motives are not right Paul. And we want you to know about it. Do you want us to do something and stop it? And Paul has this amazing huge heart. And he said I don't care. He said whether the word of God is preached for profit. Or preached for good motive. He said, I'm not, I don't care about that. He said, what I care about is the word's been preached. You know, because to the person that's being reached, if he is being reached with someone that has a wrong agenda, it makes no difference to him. He still gets reached. Is that too big a thought for some of you? I love it. That huge heart of Jesus and these guys around him that didn't get it. And Jesus said, hey, if the guy's not against us, he's for us. If people are not against us, they're for us. What a massive thought. If people in your city are not against you, they're for you. Which means most people in your city are for you. But because we have believed that shining the light is confrontational, and the world are against us, and they're our enemy, we have assumed people are against us. So we approach the world, we approach the world adversarial from the beginning. We assume confrontation, we assume resistance, we assume rebellion... Because we have been taught the world's against us. But Jesus didn't believe that. He believed that people are, people are for us if they have not said they're against us. And your city and your town is not against you until you give them a reason to be. And so we must move amongst our community as if people want what we have, as if people are interested in what we do, as if people would appreciate our reaching out to them. And that's what we found people do. You know, one of the reasons why I think churches keep a small circle of love is that 
living with a larger circle and living with an all-inclusive circle spells, ready for this word? Involvement. So the reason the two guys go past the guy that's been beaten up in the Good Samaritan story is because if you stop, you are going to get involved. And involvement means that your agenda's lost, you're delayed, you're going to sacrifice, you're going to have to get involved financially, you're going to have to risk danger yourself lingering in this part of the community. So, so enlarging our circle of love spells involvement, and involvement is a scary idea to churches that like to involve by pre praying and preaching and prophesying and crying and shabba doing We like to do that, but to actually roll our sleeves up and get involved is a different matter. That's why Jesus said, who is your neighbor? And the story tells you that your neighbor is not the person who prays for you, but the person who comes and reaches out to you. I think most people understand that, but I think the church have forgotten that. I think we think we can be people's neighbor in theology. Let me read you a, 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 a modern-day parable, and then we'll close. Because what I'm going to read to you describes to me where many of our churches have come to and where we need to do something about this. And it's not by more doing, it's by addressing this issue of our being and our circle of love and enlarging our heart. You know, the story of the Grinch. The Grinch, the Grinch had a heart three times smaller than a normal heart. And when you have a small heart, smaller than it should be, you become a Grinch. And so we've got Grinch churches. Churches that bark at people, that go by their cave. <laughs> churches that delight in trashing people's party, who trade in misery and unhappiness and, and depression and victim mentality. And when you have a heart smaller than it should be, it's amazing how much dysfunction. And so the devil has a huge conspiracy to shrink your heart. And Jesus was working with these guys and with us to ever increase the size of our heart to come closer to his. This parable says, On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur was a crude life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat. The few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves. They went out day or night searching tirelessly for the lost. So many lives were saved by the wonderful life-saving station that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and gave up their time, money, and effort to support its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy because the building was crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they placed the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. They redecorated its beautiful and furnished it, its beautiful club area, refurnished it exquisitely, and now they began to use it as a club. Fewer, mem fewer members were now interested in going out to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club decoration, 
however, and a symbolic life-saving boat dominated the room where initiations took place into membership. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crew bought in, bought boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people into the club. They were dirty and sick. Some had black skin. Some had yellow skin. The beautiful club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, a split took place in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life of the club. Some members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called a life-saving station. However, they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station further down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into another club. And yet another life-saving station was founded after that one. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most people drown. Well, thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it beneficial. And uh, I know time is precious commodity for us all, but I would love it if you would take the time to write a review or comment. And above all, maybe subscribe to my podcast channel. Thank you.